we are drawn to stories of triumph in the Bible. It is easy to focus only on them to pump us up. We avoid the stories of sadness, loss and despair. How can they lift us up? Well, um, this is the second week in our series of four looking at the subject of lament. And uh, those of you who were with us here last week or who caught the message online will remember that uh, the key to last week's message was talking about how our, our desire to have faith and fairness will actually let us down. Why? Because when you live in a broken world, nothing is fair. Okay, so things that you expect to happen because... I've done this, and therefore I deserve that, is not going to actually work in a real-world environment. And so faith and fairness will let us down. But faith in Christ, who walks with us through that suffering and challenge and the difficulty, is a completely different deal altogether. And so this morning we're going to kick on a little bit further and look a little bit more intentionally at another grief that we experience in our lives. And uh, it's something quite simple, but it's very real for us. And that's called the death or the end of innocence. The end of innocence. When we uh, raise children or when you were raised as a child, uh, in an ideal environment, you would have been protected. You would have been protected from the things that you didn't need to know, the things that you might have hurt yourself with if you had been left to use them. Mums and dads don't give children scissors and they don't allow kids to put their fingers in PowerPoints or anything like that. And so we realize that um, protecting a child is really important, but protecting their emotional well-being is just as important. Protecting the amount of knowledge that they might have is also important because to know ahead of time before you can process things is very difficult and can be very traumatic for a child. And so we talk about this age of innocence. But we live in a world today where all you have to do is turn your back and with the access to the internet... Children know way more than they need to know. And I got thinking during the week, I thought to myself, you know, there's, there's something that is missing in our society today that I remember as a child and maybe even as a teen. Something missing. We don't see it very often. That is the ability to blush. You think about it. To blush is to say, oh, I've been exposed here a little bit to too much knowledge or to too much understanding. But when you've seen it before, you don't blush. Do you? So the ability to blush is a sign, or the lack of ability to blush is a sign that we're an overexposed society, aren't we? And particularly when it comes to our children, we, we don't want them to be overexposed. We want them to have an innocence and a freedom that um, maybe, maybe many of us here enjoyed to a certain degree, but it's certainly being robbed from us now. And so this takes us back to Genesis, takes us back to the Garden of Eden. And it says here that uh, now the Lord God had planted a garden in the eastern Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's very simple, really, isn't it? 
there's a boundary. There's a boundary, but you can have it all. But right in the middle of the garden, there's a couple of trees, the trees of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we're told now... Um, oops, back one. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Okay, so you can have all of these experiences. You can have a wonderful existence, more than an existence, a wonderful, bountiful life. Okay, but there's something here that you're not allowed to indulge in. All right, you've got to leave the fruit of that tree alone. And uh, it's something about human nature, and we know this in our first parents, Adam and Eve, that they just couldn't resist. With a little bit of prodding, they couldn't resist this tree. And so we see how the whole thing unfolds. It says, Then the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the serpent tempted the woman by saying, listen, if you eat this fruit, you will be like God, and that's a good thing. You will have the knowledge of good and evil. And that's being sold as something positive. But it's actually sold on the pretext that you will too be like God. And that is taking the creation too far to put the creation in a place where it too can know good and evil but doesn't have the power to overcome evil or the power to instigate good in the way that God does. So that knowledge is a dangerous thing in this situation. But the thing about knowledge is that it's really knowledge that messes us up. Now, I'm not talking about education. I'm talking about the thirst and the desire for knowledge, which can take people on a journey that leads to conquest. Think of how the world was shaped through its history. Whenever a person went across a border looking for knowledge, it didn't take very long before there was conquest. And within the Western world, the Western world was essentially formed by conquest as they were seeking knowledge, and that knowledge led to power and a desire to conquest. And from there, we just see this greed coming in in perpetuity, this ongoing greed to not only know more, but to have more. Let's take it right back to a very simple human level. God calls gossip sin. Yet gossip is the desire to know more than you should know, isn't it? Okay, to know those tasty little morsels of gossip, just enough to tantalize your taste buds, as the book of Proverbs tells us, and these things can destroy community. And the same it is with our relationships. People aren't satisfied with one relationship. They might desire more relationships, and therefore we enter, we enter into a, a time that we are now where largely there's, there's this promiscuity around, uh, a sense in which people are owed the knowledge of knowing knowing somebody else in an intimate way. And they feel it's their right to do so. And being told, in fact, that it's their right. All of this outside of the knowledge of God. Just yesterday, Michaela and I were drinking coffee and looking out at the rain. And um, we got this, this dish, uh, concrete dish on a table outside. 
and we noticed that a blackbird came and landed in it and started having a wash. And, um, and Michaela made the comment to me, she said, how did that bird know to do that? Who taught it to have a bath? That's what she was saying. And I, I, and I was thinking, knowing that this message is what I was sort of meditating on during the, during the week, I said, you know what? That could be a description to us of the knowledge of good and evil versus innocence. Intuitively, the bird knew to wash itself. Okay, it must have had a reason for it. Mum didn't take it to the swimming pool one day and teach it how to get in and how to towel off. But uh, the bird knew instinctively to jump in the water and have a wash. And I, I said, isn't there something beautiful about that? There's an innocence and an intuitiveness. And I questioned, I was saying, I wonder if that's what we had in the Garden of Eden, an intuitiveness about what it is that was good and what it is that was godly before we got exposed to the knowledge of good and evil. I mean, because we live in a world where we all have this knowledge of good and evil, it's very hard to try to imagine what life would have been like in an, in an age of innocence, isn't it? You can only go back to your childhood, you know, where me and my brother was, would, you know, at the age of two and three, get thrown in the bath together and, you know, enjoy having a bit of fun as brothers do in the bath. Wouldn't be so much fun now. I can, I can, I can assure you. Yeah. And so, in that age of innocence, in that age of innocence, there was something um, beautiful about it. Stuff that I didn't need to know, um, I didn't know. And that's, that's what made it so beautiful. Um, just uh, talking about what you need to know, this week I was in town, I was walking down a footpath, and a lady came out of this driveway, there was sort of like a business centre, and uh, she'd gone and tried to find a car park, but she couldn't find one. And so she drove out, and she was there on the footpath, about 10 metres ahead of me, just deciding whether she should park on the left or right, because she'd seen the grass on the curb, you know, just the side of the curb. And, uh, and I saw her look, and she saw the grass on the left, and so she quickly spun the wheel of her SUV. Uh, this lady was a pensioner. And um, I had one of those moments in slow motion as she quickly gunned the car and drove it straight up on top of some wooden bollards about this high. And uh, you just heard this crunch, grind. And then she wound down the window and she said, I'm stuck. I said, you, you sure are stuck. And so I walked over and I had a look and I said, look, you know, if you put the car in reverse, you might be able to get it off. She goes, okay. So she puts it in reverse, but the engine block was actually hold, being held up by one of these wooden bollards, so her wheels were just touching the ground, and so she was spinning, trying to go backwards, and nothing was happening. And I said, look, hold on there. I'll get around this front of the car, and I'll give it a shove, and we'll see what can happen. I'm good for that. And so, so I give this thing a shove, and as it goes off, <clears throat> the bollard uprights itself underneath the bumper of the car, and as she drives off backwards, the whole front of the car falls off. And I'm like, I'm staring at this. She's looking at me through the window. And she said, what's happened? I'm like, you don't want to know. You know, you don't want to know. So uh, a guy from a, a neighbouring office came out, seen what happened. And he had a whole lot of duct tape. And so we just strapped her car back together with duct tape, put the bumper back on. And... Um, off she went. 
some things you just don't want to know, right? And uh, I think that's a little bit like this with the internet. You know, the internet has this power for good, doesn't it? With knowledge, with uh, you can look up anything you like, a recipe, words to a song, uh, whatever subject you might be trying to get some information about, it'll help you. Social media's fantastic. Um, you know, the day of arguing over a cup of coffee now about who wrote that song and what year is gone, isn't it? You know, there's a generation now that will never understand the joy of saying, I bet you five bucks, you're wrong. <laughs> you know, and as much as uh, now you can just jump on, the, on, on old Mr. Google and you get the answer in 20 seconds or 10 seconds. Um, but the, the internet, whilst it does have its downside with pornography, of course, that's a real problem, there's another part to the internet which we don't talk much about, but it's called the dark web. And you need access codes to get into it. But once you're there, it's a whole new world, I understand. I've never been there myself. Read about it, as many of you would have. And there you can buy drugs. You can buy illegal firearms. Uh, you can even arrange a hit on somebody, apparently. You know, um, I don't know how that works, but um, it's been tempting. And, um, <laughs> and, and here is something where your knowledge has gone to a whole new different level. Things you don't need to know. Seriously? We don't need to know that stuff. All right, and so it is with the Garden of Eden. We had enough knowledge, but then when we ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, when we did, through our first parents, we've inherited this understanding, this knowledge, this knowing. And so for us as, as human beings, we now know we now know more than what is good for us. Is that fair to say? We know more than what is good for us. And so this morning, looking at Scripture, I, I decided I'd take on three Psalms, Psalm 11, 12, and 13. These Psalms are written by David, and they, they go in a, a progression. They start off with a real sense of, um, of innocence. David's innocence is seen here as theological innocence is understanding of God. And so they're all short psalms. So let me, let me prove what I'm saying to you here. Psalm 11 says, In the Lord I take refuge. How then can you say to me, flee like a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bows. They set their arrows against the strings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. He, absorbs every, he observes everyone on earth. His eyes examine them. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. On the wicked, he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot. For the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. The upright will see his face. So here's a very, very simple psalm, isn't it? Very simple theology here. David is saying to the upright at heart, God will protect them. To the unrighteous, those who love violence, they're going to know uh, fire and sulfur and a, and a hot wind will be their lot. Okay? Very simple. If you're good, God will bless you. If you're bad, you're in trouble. Okay? Nice and simple. A psalm, a song of innocence. And from here, we can see that David is, is delighted in God because even though he knows trouble, He's very, very confident that God is going to fight his battles for him and uh, good will overcome evil. So a very simple psalm. Psalm 12 is a psalm 
of disappointment, and we start to see this progress occur. There's a little bit more wrestling at the beginning of the psalm with God's goodness and how that goodness applies itself in a confused world. So let's have a look at that. It says, Help, Lord, for no one is faithful anymore. Those who are loyal have vanished from the human race. Everyone lies to their neighbor. They flatter with their lips, but harbor deception in their hearts. May the Lord silence all flattering lips and every boastful tongue. Those who say, by our tongues we will prevail, our own lips will defend us. Who is Lord over us? Because the poor are plundered and the needy grown, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will protect them from those who malign them. And the words of the Lord are flawless, like, pure, like silver purified in a crucible, like gold refined seven times. You, Lord, will keep the needy safe and will protect us forever from the wicked who freely strut about when, really better strut about when what is vile is honored by the human race. Okay, so right at the beginning and the end, the psalmist is talking about sin, the vile who strut about. And at the beginning of the psalm there, of course, he's talking about there's no more people who are faithful anymore. And yet in the middle, he's describing the fact that the Lord is flawless and like silver purified in a crucible, like gold refined seven times. So in other words, even though the, the enemy is winning in certain ways, we caught up in that process of right, the battle of righteousness over evil, we too are being purified. Okay, so it's not a simple victory, is it? We're being told here that we too are challenged when the world is going amok. And we too are challenged in such a way that we're crucified like in a crucible. All right? We're being refined. Then the next psalm, we're going from 11, 12 to 13 now, becomes a psalm of despair. There's only a, a little few sentences of hope. So David's taken quite a journey here in this time of, clearly a time of lament. He says, How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will fall Oh, I will sleep in death, and my enemy will say, I have overcome him, and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. It's a sense in which in those last two lines there, that David has fallen, but he just grabbed onto something. I was a kid, I used to go and swim down at the Tapuna. Uh, beach, and we used to go up the Tapuna Channel, and there was these huge pine trees that hung over the channel. So as kids, we would climb the pine trees and jump off into the channel, you know? This is before Osh, before the fun police turned up. And, uh, and probably just as well the fun police turned up because we got heard of it. There was one time I was climbing the tree, and I fell, and I went past a branch, and I clung onto it. Well, when you cling on to a, a barky bark, pine tree, you're worse off actually, because I ended up with scratches down my arms and on my chest, and I still had to let go, and went splat and ended up with bruises on from the water. But there's a sense in which David here is falling, saying, hey, come on, how long must I wrestle with you, God, with my own thoughts? 
the evil that is in my own life as well as my enemies surrounding me. But there at the very last minute, he says, but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. And there's a cry of desperation there. I know he's been good to me. What you sense here is that for David, he's going through a tough time. And he's reminding himself that he once had faith. Right now, he's not really feeling the faith, not feeling the love. But there are times in your life when you have faith in the fact that you had faith before. Does it make sense? There are times in your life when you're committed to the commitment that you once made. Anybody who's married has probably been in that situation where you say, I love you forever, and then you have a really bad argument and you go, I'm committed to the commitment I made. Right now I don't feel so committed, but I'm committed to the commitment I made those years ago, and that commitment has proven to me to be a worthwhile commitment, so I'll be committed to the commitment and trust that things will get better as they go on. Or am I the only one? Come on. This is my wife talking about me, of course. My wife never lets me down. Oh. But David is committed to the commitment that he made. And so he cries out and says, God, you are my salvation. Back in 1997, uh, Mother Teresa died. Of course, we know Mother Teresa. She's, a, she's an icon, really. Uh, her heart for the poor, the lost, the desperate was absolutely outstanding. Uh, people have gathered up her diaries, and in doing so, they discovered a world that Mother Teresa experienced that they didn't expect to find. They found that Mother Teresa had many, many dark nights of the soul. In fact, it went on in times for years. And uh, I've just got a, a little piece of a biography here that I want to show you because it demonstrates something of the journey that she went through. While bleak statements did not predominate in Mother Teresa's private writings, they occurred repeatedly. I am told God lives in me, and yet the reality of darkness and coldness and emptiness is so great that nothing touches my soul, she wrote. At another point, I want God with all the power of my soul, and yet between us there is terrible separation, and again, heaven from every side is closed. And this remarkable cry from the heart, I feel just that terrible pain of loss, of God not wanting me, of God not being God, of God not really existing. The guy whose name starts with K <laughs> said in an interview with Mother Teresa's that Mother Teresa's words are only shocking if they are thought to be a, re a real doubt of faith, which he vigorously denies. And Nuna believes that the very words demonstrate faith in God's reality. We cannot long for something that is not intimately close to us. So it sounds like a contradiction. But in her times of anguish and her times of crying out, she was crying out for what she knew she was missing, and that was that love and intimacy with God. Well, you can only know that if you've had it or are desiring it out of a great need and a great faith. Isn't that it's fascinating, isn't it? So when we doubt, when our faith today is in the confidence that we had a greater confidence some years ago, or in the times of trouble, 
when we're looking back over our shoulder and say, whew, you know, this is tough, but I've been here before, or at least somebody's been here before, or the Bible talks about people who have been here before, I can actually hold on. I can hold on even though it hurts. And this is what lament is all about. Lament is about um, essentially a loss of hope, and particularly in this case, a loss of innocence. A loss of innocence. We know more than we need to know. We know more than we can handle. I know lots of people who say, I don't, I don't watch the news on TV anymore. It's just too despairing. You can understand that, can't you? Um, one of the things about knowing more than we should has started to affect the generation known as the millennials. And I'm going to show you a bit of video in a moment. But this, this clip is by a guy called Simon Sinek. Some of you have read, uh, would have listened to it at some point. But he talks about the millennial generation as a generation of people who are relatively hard done by in as much as they have lost a lot of hope and lost a lot of confidence. And uh, I'm going to play it for you now and you'll, I'll get him to speak for himself as to why it is that the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you can have it all, comes back to bite you. I have yet to give a speech or have a meeting where somebody doesn't ask me the millennial question. Um, What's the millennial question? Apparently millennials as a generation, which is a group of people who were born approximately uh, 1984 and after, um, uh, are tough to manage. And they're accused of being entitled and narcissistic, self-interested, unfocused, lazy. But entitled is the big one. And, uh, and because they confound leadership so much, what's happening is leaders are asking the millennials, what do you want? And millennials are saying, we want to work in a place with purpose, love that. Um, we want to make an impact, you know, whatever that means. Um, uh, we want free food and bean bags. Uh, and so somebody articulates some sort of purpose, there's lots of free food and there's bean bags, and yet for some reason they're still not happy. And that's because um, you, the, they're missing, there's, there's, a, there's a missing piece. Um, what I've learned is that there, I can break it down into four pieces, right? There are four, four things, four characteristics. One is parenting, the other one is uh, technology, the third is impatience, and the fourth is environment. The generation that we call the millennials, too many of them grew up um, subject to, not my words, failed parenting strategies, you know? Where, for example, they were told that they were special all the time. They were told that they could have anything they want in life just because they want it, right? They were told, um, uh, some of them got into um, honors classes not because they deserved it, but because their parents complained. And some of them got A's not because they earned them, but because the teachers didn't want to deal with the parents. Some kids got participation medals. You got a medal for coming in last, right? Which the science we know is pretty clear, which is it devalues the medal and the reward for those who actually work hard. And that actually makes the person who comes in last feel embarrassed because they know they didn't deserve it. So it actually makes them feel worse, right? So you take this group of people and they graduate school and they get a job and they're thrust into, an, into the real world, and in an instant, they find out they're not special, their moms can't get them a promotion, um, that you get nothing for coming in last, and by the way, you can't just have it because you want it, right? And in an instant, their entire self-image is shattered, 
And so you have an entire generation that's growing up with lower self-esteem than previous generations. The other problem to compound it is we're growing up in a Facebook, Instagram world. In other words, we're good at putting filters on things. We're good at showing people that life is amazing even though I'm depressed, right? And so everybody sounds tough and everybody sounds like they got it all figured out. And the reality is there's very little toughness and most people don't have it figured out. And so when the more senior people say, well, what should we do? They sound like, this is what you gotta do. And they have no clue, right? So you have an entire generation growing up with lower self-esteem than previous generations, right? Through no fault of their own, through no fault of their own, right? They were dealt a bad hand, right? Now let's add in technology. We know that engagement with social media and our cell phones releases a chemical called dopamine. That's why when you get a text, it feels good. Right? So you know, we've all had it where you're feeling a little bit down or feeling a bit lonely. And so you send out 10 texts to 10 friends, you know, hi, 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 hi. Because <laughs> it feels good when you get a response, right? right? It's why we count the likes, it's why we go back 10 times to see if, and if it's going, if our, my Instagram is growing slower, I would, I, I, did I do something wrong? Do they not like me anymore, right? The, the trauma for young kids to be unfriended, right? Because we know when you get it, you get a hit of dopamine, which feels good. It's why we like it, it's why we keep going back to it. Dopamine is the exact same chemical that makes us feel good when we smoke, when we drink, and when we gamble. In other words, it's highly, highly addictive, right? We have age restrictions on smoking, gambling, and uh, alcohol, and we have no age restrictions on social media and cell phones, which is the equivalent of opening up the liquor cabinet and saying to our teenagers, hey, by the way, this adolescence thing, if it gets you down. <laughs> but that's basically what's happening. That's basically what's happening, right? That's basically what happened. You have an entire generation that has access to an addictive, numbing t chemical called dopamine through social media and cell phones as they're going through the high stress of adolescence. Why is this important? It's helpful, isn't it? You can find that on the internet. Sinek, S-Y-N-E-C-K, Simon Sinek is his name. And uh, he's got numbers of uh, different talks. That one's called the talk that broke the internet, literally, okay? So it's been seen probably 35 million times, the 17 about 17 minutes, I think it is. So there's the millennial generation, but they're not the first generation to deal with lament, are they? Because every generation has had its challenges, generations Prior to mine, of course, have been through times of war. In the 50s and 60s, there was the, uh, the threat of nuclear annihilation, which still probably is around at the moment. Somebody would stop tweeting, it might be better. But, um, <laughs> but there's a song that is deemed to be the best pop folk song ever written. And it captures this lament. The song was written in 1972 which is 45 years ago. It's a long time. And uh, our team's going to play uh, a fair portion of it for you this morning, and I'm sure you'll catch on to why it is a lament. Long, long time ago I can still remember how the music used to make me smile. I knew if I had my chance, I could make the people dance. 
Maybe they'd be happy for a while. February made me shiver with every paper I deliver. Bad news on the doorstep. I couldn't take one more step. Can't remember if I cried when I read about his widowed bride. Something touched me deep inside the day the music died. So bye bye, Miss American Pie. Drove my Chevy to the levee, but the levee was dry. And good old boys were drinking whiskey and rye, singing, this will be the day that I die. This will be the day that I die. Did you write the book of love, and do you have faith in God above if the Bible tells me so do you believe in rock and roll can music save your mortal soul can you teach me how to dance real slow know that you're in love Saw you dancing in the gym. You both kicked off your shoes. And I dig those rhythm and blues. I was a lonely teenage bronco with a pink carnation and a pickup truck. I knew I was out of love today. The music died. Singing bye bye, this American pie. Drove my Chevy to the levee, but the levee was dry. Good old boys were drinking whiskey and rye. Singing this will be the day that I die. This will be the day that I die. Now for ten years we've been on our own, and moss grows fat on the road. Chester sang for the king and queen in a code he borrowed from James Dean and the boys. You and me. While the king was looking down, the jester stole his thorny crown. The courtroom was adjourned. Nobody was returned while Lennon read a book on Marx. Cortez practiced in the park. We sang dirges in the dark today. The music died. We were singing bye bye, Miss American Pie. Drove my Chevy to the land. 
Thank you, team. This will be the day that I die. Well, one of the things about this song is that when Don McLean, the author and singer of this song, was interviewed at any time since 1972, and he's been asked, what's the meaning of the song? He says, I'm not going to tell you. Isn't that fun? And for 45 years, he's been telling people to work it out for themselves. And of course, a lot of people have. The day the music died is deemed to be the day by some that Buddy Holly died in a plane crash. You know, um, in a coat he borrowed from James Dean, apparently Mick Jagger put on uh, James Dean's jacket and wore it one time in a concert. But as you can see, it's, it's a lament, isn't it? And it's a lament that goes on, and we can see this now with the words that are up on the back screen. Oh, and there were, we were all in one place, a generation lost in space, with no time left to start again. So come on, Jack, be nimble, Jack, be quick. Jack sat on a candlestick because fire is the devil's only friend. Oh, and as I watched him on the stage, my hands were clenched in fists of rage. No angel born in hell could break that Satan's spell. And as the flames climbed higher into the night to light the sacrificial rite, I saw Satan laughing with delight the day the music died. Now, you can see why they sung dirges in the night. Because this is sad stuff, isn't it? This is depressing. This is talking about a loss of hope. This is talking about the devil having his way. And the American pie, the American dream, the Western dream, is just dissipating before our eyes, disappearing in front of us. And then we move into a time of even greater loss. And he talks about the church. He says, I met a girl who sang the blues and I asked her for some happy news, but she just smiled and turned away. I went down to the sacred store. That's the church. I'd heard the music years before, but the man there said the music wouldn't play. And in the streets, the children screamed, the lovers cried, and the poets dreamed. But not a word was spoken. The church bells all were broken. And the three men I admire most, the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, they caught the last train for the coast, the day the music died. The death of the church, the death of hope. And uh, you can see this 1972 was such a a time of transformation and transition in the United States, just coming off the back of the Vietnamese War and so much unnecessary loss and death, the, the threat of nuclear disaster, own your own nuclear bomb shelter if you wish. But it's a, it's a lament, and it's a lament that has resonated in the Western world, and that's why it's deemed to be one of the best songs ever written. It may be one of the best songs ever written because we've been told to project our own meaning onto it by Don McLean. If he had told us that all these people were just his music buddies, it might not have so much meaning. But there was a time in Israel's history, and I just want to close with this. There was a time in Israel's history when the Israelites were fighting the Philistines and Phineas was the head uh, priest and he decided it would be a really, really good idea if they could take the Ark of the Covenant out of the, out of the temple and use it as an instrument of war so that the presence of God would go with the soldiers 
into a place of battle and therefore they would win the battle. Well, it didn't go very well. And in fact, the Philistines managed to seize the ark and uh, the presence of God was taken. And that term was referred to as Ichabod. Okay? The glory of God has departed. Which is very much about that final verse, isn't it? In that song, American Pie. The Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost. They caught the last train for the coast. It's a good little rhyme. Just a very sad scenario. And so, lament means that there's a pall of sadness. And I use that word pall deliberately because we talk about a pall or a cloud of darkness, don't we? A pall is actually a, a, like a blanket or a cloak that is put over a coffin. Okay, that's where we get the name pallbearers from. Okay, in the day before we had shiny jewellery boxes, which we packaged people off to the cemetery in, um, would be just wooden boxes, okay, and, and you'd put, your, put this cloak over the top of it and made it look a lot nicer, okay, but this was called a pall blanket. And, and this pall is a description of sadness over death. And this is the, the picture that we have to pick up on when we read scriptures such as we do in, uh, in, in Psalms 13 or next week, uh, the week ahead, we're going to be looking at Ecclesiastes because these are realities of our everyday life. And as Christians, we need to come to grips with the fact that the American dream or the New Zealand dream is not always achievable and therefore, like a millennial generation that discovers that the hard way, we should be informed that we can end up in a place where it's not exactly where we want it to be. But that doesn't rob us completely of our joy because we've been told ahead of time that life can be difficult. Life can be challenging. And when life is challenging, we're given the permission to lament. We're given the permission to lament. I loved it what Simon Sinek said about our Facebook, our social media. You know, we can have a really, really depressing day, but just look at my Facebook, I'm amazing. You know, that's terrible, isn't it? It's just a whole bunch of lies. And yet we're told by Scripture that we're allowed to not only lament, but we're allowed to go to God with this. And we're allowed to go to each other with this. And we're allowed to see it as a normal part of our everyday existence. doesn't mean we have to stay there, but it means that we're allowed to journey through these difficult and challenging times. And that's the reason why we're doing this series. But I don't want to leave you on a, a sad note, a, a funeral note, but I just want to remind you of where our hope is. The angel came, the angel came, and said to the shepherds when Christ was born that he will be called Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means God is with us. So even in tough times, when David's falling there in Psalm 12 and he catches onto that branch and he holds on for dear life and it still hurts, God is with us. That's his greatest promise. He'll never forsake us and he'll never leave us. Let me pray. Father, we are reminded that within the world that we live in, this knowledge that we have from the, from the garden is more than we can handle. There's more understanding there than, 
that is good for us. It's a sense in which we weren't equipped to handle the burdens of modern life. And yet in the midst of our struggle, we are told that you'll never forsake us and you'll never leave us. But that doesn't mean that we disregard our reality of difficulty, but we bring it all to you. We bring it all into your temple. We bring it all into that place of prayer. And by doing so, God, we're given a freedom to express our feelings before you, unashamedly describe our heart's cry. And by doing so, God, you take hold of that burden. You share it with us. And we're set free, Lord, from that desperation, set free from carrying something too big for us. So God, help us in a broken world to be fully human, to be fully engaged with the world around us, recognizing that we can't carry this all on our own. The knowledge is too much for us. But remind us, God, that you are the Emmanuel, that God, you are with us. You are with us. You are with us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just like you to turn to the person next to you. You might not know them. Do this twice, maybe. Look them in the eye and say, God is with us.